This is John Murphy. I'm John Murphy, right? And you're listening to the Best Bitch Podcast, the best fucking podcast in the fucking world. And I tell you now, Chocolate, there's no better podcast out there. I know, ever since my magic left me, I've been wreaking in depression and to stop myself and top myself, I've been listening to everything. And keep the laugh, because nothing bitch, the Best Bitch fucking podcast. Tell your friends, your family, the folks on the fucking road. Get up and down the street and tell them all. I've been listening to everything. It should be number one in the charts. I don't understand why it's not. I blame all you motherfuckers out there who listen to this. They're not actually doing any dead. Get the lads to number one. That's where they deserve to be. Number one. They lost out the independent podcast awards. Now it's fucking steaming over it. Mobilize. Get behind the bodies. They've got to get all the way to the top of the charts. For fuck's sake, everything depends upon it. When it comes to film podcasts or just podcasts, two funny fuckers. The best bits podcast is the best fucking podcast to beat. I love it, love it, love it. They also have a Patreon, but I'm not signed up to that because magic cleaned me out. So I've got no money on me. I'm fucking my arse tired of pets. Right, Kevin? Yes? Can you see me? I can. A fucking, I'm a fucking greyhound. I'm a greyhound in the trap, ready for, ready for the door to come up and that hair to go whoosh, and I'm ready to bolt out of the trap. I've never seen a greyhound that wide. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't be fat shaming. It's, it's terrible. You look svelte. <laughs> listen, listen. You look more like a whippet. As you said before, punch up, punch up. All right. I am punching up. You're the one with the basta. You can at least move it off camera. The best bit. I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You are stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where we pick our favourite scenes. I'm not going to interrupt randomies. you on this episode because it drives people mad. Jesus Christ, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> this is your co-host, Will, writer of three films plus a Star Wars and Christmas special. And I'm joined, once again, by my co-host and serial interrupter, writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Will? You're like a greyhound. You're rocking back and forth in your chair. Yeah, I'm highly energised. I'm high- This topic has just, has been stuck in my head for weeks now. Weeks now. It's turned me inside out, upside down. And... I I just need to exercise this from my system right now. I need to do this recording so I can stop thinking about MacGuffins once and for all. Well, you have our Patreons to blame for that. Really? Because they're the ones that chose this for you. So we said a few weeks back, we put it to our patrons and said, pick a topic for Will and pick a topic for me. And we gave them a list of options. And I'll tell you what the options were what the episodes could have been and all these options have gone back into the wheel so they could come up again in the future but we had like best mentor scene best villain scene best henchman best date scene best flashback best crime scene and the one that they chose that came out on top which is what we're doing today is best MacGuffin yes and you're happy with that topic I'm I'm so glad I got this topic because it has I'm glad you got it not me it's changed how I think about story, developing stories, right? Really? It's I've learned something. I've learned something. Okay. Right? I'm coming into this with a very cursory information. 
on what I think a MacGuffin is and how I would employ it. This is where I want to start, right? I want to ask you, Kevin, because you you were probably like of the same mindset that I was uh, a few weeks ago when I first kind of even got this topic. I kind of had a, a certain kind of like idea of what MacGuffins were. What in your eyes, as a screenwriter, is a MacGuffin? A MacGuffin is an object that characters are focused on attaining, but mm-hmm. it doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things. So if you were to learn in spy films, like if they're going after an object like uh, the Knox list or the rabbit's foot or whatever, and you learned what it was, it would actually be kind of clutter and expositional. And it's like, I don't really care. All mm-hmm. you care about is the journey, the adventure, the the through line that the characters navigate to get yeah. to that moment where they attain it or they don't attain it, but it doesn't ultimately matter. So it's a, it's a thing to motivate the characters that isn't character based. Yeah. So it's not like they're they're on a quest to solve something about themselves, some inner failing. It's more yeah. like X marks the spot. We've got to get to X because that's where the treasure is. Yeah. That's a, that's excellent, right? Excellent. Well, top marks for Kevin. Very very good, right? Oh, thank you. Didn't know we were being graded. This is the oral. There's going to be a written part of this whole exam, right? I was kind of similar to you, and I would have said, I would have added to that. I would have said, so I'm wrong. No, you're right. You're you're right. Okay. okay? So you're doing you're doing excellent. But I would have I before I started researching this topic, I would have also said, listen, it's kind of the device that's the 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 thing that's that that's driving the plot that the main characters are after, and it's something that's very important. It could be very important at the end of the story or not, you know? So, like, it could be, like, the Ark in the Razor Lost Ark. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. It could be um, the, the, the Death Star plans in Star Wars or R2-D2. An analysis of the plans provided by Princess Leia has demonstrated a weakness in the battle station. The approach will not be easy. There's so many of these, like it's in in Marvel, in the Marvel universe, it's like the Infinity Stones. It's not really a person though, is it? But it can be. It can be a person. It can be a person. But it's something that's kind of central, that's driving the plot or an element that's kind of kickstarting the plot or something that the characters are chasing, right? That's what I thought before I started researching this topic. Right. But to get there, I want to go back to the origin of the MacGuffin. Okay. So Alfred Hitchcock is traditionally been credited with, you know, the one who originated the MacGuffin. And there was a there's a funny clip of him explaining it in a talk show where he said, someone asked, What is a MacGuffin? And there's a, the, it's described in a scene in an English train going to Scotland. And one man says to the other opposite him, he said, what's that package above your head there? And the other man said, oh, that, that's a MacGuffin. He said, well, what is a MacGuffin? He said, well, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. The man said, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. He said, then that's no MacGuffin. <laughs> Okay, so that's his funny way oh my God. of describing a MacGuffin, very Hitchcock way. No, he did actually go on and describe it properly. In your films, and one of them is, uh, is a MacGuffin. 
Can you explain what a MacGuffin yes, is? Yes, a, a MacGuffin you see in most films about spies. It is a thing that the spies are after. In the days of Rudyard Kipling, it would be the plans of the fort on the Khyber Pass. Mm -hmm. It would be the plans of an airplane engine and the plans uh, of an atom bomb, anything you like. It's always called the thing that the characters on the screen worry about, but the audience don't care. But it actually wasn't Hitchcock who came up with the term, first of all. It was his screenwriting collaborator, um, Angus MacPhail. Yeah, because it's a screenwriting term. It's a screen- so it was a screenwriter who came up with it, Angus MacPhail, who started off in the, the silent movies. Fucking directors, wrote- they take credit for everything, Will. He's got the credit, but it's Angus MacPhail. And Angus MacPhail, as you already described, basically defined it as something that's inherent in spy stories, that it's something that a character is after that ultimately has no significance at the end of the film. It's just a device that kickstarts the plot, okay? But ultimately, it doesn't necessarily, it, it amounts to nothing, right, as the story progresses. So it's a device that's just there um. It may be something that's important to our main character. It's more important to kind of the villains in the story traditionally. It's generally used in spy spy movies. So a lot of Hitchcock movies use MacGuffins because mm-hmm. he kind of turned. And he, like after doing research for this, Hitchcock remade the same plot so many times over and over again. And it's usually about like the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time being pulled into some sort of conspiracy. And he's yeah. just kind of unraveling and figuring out what the fuck is going on. And it's kind of stayed like that for a long time. And these are interesting stories where we kind of watch these characters um, survive. And we wonder, how are they going to get out the other end of this? We don't really know if they're going to survive or not. It's hard to pick what your favorite MacGuffin is because they're just anonymous. They don't matter. Exactly. That's That's the main point of MacGuffin. I can delete my list here. (laughs) But no, but no, I want you to hold on to your list, right? Because I think it'll be a good kind of example of how we'll how we'll how we'll change things. How will how will how I've kind of I've changed my perception of how I look at this plot device. Because but things changed, right? And what happened was Star Wars came out. And then somewhere (sighs) post this is genuinely, I think this has changed how we define MacGuffins. Somewhere after in the after Star Wars release, release and its huge success, everyone wanted to emulate Star Wars. And Star Wars, as we as a lot of us know, is very much a classical hero's journey. It's based on mythology. It's based on all of those things where you know, you know, uh, Lucas was very much um, uh, focused on like re- recapturing the kind of the the traditional hero myth journeys right and that was something that's quite he's quite open about now what lucas does in the years after star wars is he says r2d2 is the macguffin of star wars right r2d2 is critical to stars because r2d2 holds the death star plans and that's what's so important to to the story that's the ultimate thing that well you know defeat the empire when you say integral to star wars you mean the first film not the, the first franchise. film yeah okay. the very first film so the very okay. first film is a very much a classic hero's journey and what happens is that that's where things split right because hitchcock's original definition of it is basically it's just something that's important to so it's just something to kickstart the plot 
It's not really important. By the end of the movie, we should actually nearly have forgotten about the actual MacGuffin. Yeah, because I would consider a MacGuffin to be interchangeable with anything else. So whether it is you need to get the nuclear codes or you need to get the microphone with the evidence of the murder or you need to get the suitcase with the money in it, you could swap any of them as long as people are desperate to get it. Uh, It wouldn't change what happens in the story and it wouldn't affect the characters in any other way, uh, any different way. So that that to me would be what a true MacGuffin is. But R2-D2, you take R2-D2 out and the film is fundamentally changed. Exactly. You were absolutely right. And he also says, and I would have thought, I debated this so much going into this this topic. With yourself? Yeah, yeah. You oh, like seriously, stomping this has been going to yourself. This has been. I'm Kevin. My I have precious, been, my precious. I have been that about coffin. I've been talking to myself. <laughs> I've been talking to myself, kind of like going, "How do I fucking get this out of my system?" Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Ark, yeah. right? Looks like a traditional MacGuffin because it's just it's something that Indies after, and it could maybe you could swap it out most of the way throughout the story until the final act, where the 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 Ark becomes critical to resolving the whole story. Because once he opens it, it's it's the power, right? It's the power that fucking defeats all the Nazis. So I, I said, right, there's been a split, there's been a mislabeling, mislabeling of the term. And I think what's happened is that it's fine. We kind of have all these great hero's journey stories now. Um, or we've had a lot of great ones, but we've had an awful lot of shit ones as well. And I think Hollywood has become, over the last couple of decades become obsessed with the MacGuffin. That's because of Marvel. We've got the 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 Infinity, Infinity Stones. Stones and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. They shouldn't be called MacGuffins, right? What they should be called is golden fleeces. Is this your term? This is my term. I am going to relabel Okay, let the, me let me absorb of- this. Because this now is like mid act climax was a pre prior one. Now we've got golden yeah. fleeces. This is now Explain a Explain to me I'm, how you came up with the term a golden fleece. Because it's going back to the Greek, Greek myth of Jason and uh, the Argonauts, Jason and golden fleece. Jason in that Greek myth, which is how, what Lucas was basing his original hero's journey on, these Greek stories of like Jason and Hercules and all those guys. Jason has to go and get a fleece because he's, He's the right, he he's, should be the rightful king of his kingdom, but he needs to go and acquire a golden fleece to be able to come back with the power to become the ruler of his kingdom, right? So the golden fleece is critical for him to come back to be, to be successful, to have the power. Without it, he will never achieve his rightful place, which is the conqueror, the hero, the winner. This is important. The winner, right? So... The, that plot device, which is not a MacGuffin, it's a, go, it, a golden fleece and it allows our central character to win, to conquer, to be the hero, to be the conquering hero at the end of the story. Okay? Okay. I need some examples to, to lock that in. So, oh, like, look, the, inf- the, uh, the, the Infinity Stones, I'm just going to, basically any of the Marvel movies, there's always a, go- there's always a golden fleece that's required for a device to be in a certain place at a certain time. The one ring is a golden fleece. The one ring is kind of like, you know, we have to get the, we have to get this ring to Mount Doom. This is critical for us to, uh, to, um, 
end the threat. It has to happen for the story to finish. If it doesn't happen, we fail. If it does happen, we succeed. You know what I mean? So it's critical to the closure of the story. So I think that's what Golden Fleece are. They're critical to the, go- to the closure of the story. Oh, so it's completely opposite to like the Maltese Falcon. Exactly. Exactly. So American Pie, when they're set on losing their virginity, would the virginity right. be a MacGuffin or Golden Fleece? Or it doesn't, it's not important either way. It's just part of the story. This is me now interrogating your thesis. No, I'm 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 thinking in that example. No, I have you see that's it. I have to actually look at those films specific specific cases. But just from a distance, I'm looking at. I'm going. It's probably a golden fleece. It's the thing he's chasing. It's the thing he actually wants. It's the thing that's kind of like really important at the end of the story. Does he get it or does he not get it? It's a very binary thing. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's like do they get it or do they not but get it? It doesn't give For- many magic properties when he has it. Hold on. No, no, no. But my like point shagging the pie be- doesn't give many magic properties. <laughs> but no, I think you've taken in the fact that you've taken in the idea that they get some power or something like that. It's a kind of, it's a binary thing. It's a binary. Do they get it or do they not get it at the end of the story? Right. What I want to delineate is, right, golden fleece type stories really kind of have two outcomes. Do they get it or do they not get it? Right. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Do they win or do they not win? And I think yeah. that's very one or the other. Versus stories that utilize MacGuffins, right, are more about do these characters survive? And I think those types of stories are far more compelling. So a MacGuffin, you can drop the MacGuffin at any stage in the story and it doesn't matter one way or the other to the outcome. But a magic fleece is crucially important to finishing the story. Exactly. There's been a difference between... Alfred Hitchcock's original definition of the Golden Fleece and how Lucas went and mislabeled it as he's taken MacGuffin and kind of changed the MacGuffin. He said, oh no, audiences should care about the MacGuffin. And I say that's bullshit. I think audiences should only care, not only, should mainly care about the characters and that's the most important thing. Because if we start caring about the MacGuffin, everyone's asking like, oh, where's the football? So you've got a MacGuffin and a Lucas. Yeah, <laughs> I'm calling it a golden fleece. I'm calling it a golden fleece. My point is, is that I want to focus in on traditional MacGuffins as defined by Angus McPhail and utilized so many times in Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock's films and give examples of films that are traditional MacGuffins. You know what's funny? All my MacGuffins are traditional MacGuffins. Oh, brilliant. So I wouldn't have picked R2-D2 out as a MacGuffin. Okay, great. Lucas has been. Lucas has said, R2-D2 is the MacGuffin of Star Wars A New Hope. And I'm going, okay, that's interesting. Lucas right. also said that the prequels rhyme. <laughs> he says Not every things. line. That only makes He's, sense in his head. Again, it's like poetry. It's sort of they rhyme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. So I've been talking a long time. Kevin, would you like to get the ball rolling? I would like to hear. I've been talking a lot. I want to hear from you. Can you give me one of your picks for best MacGuffin scene? One of my picks. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I sort of categorize some of them into different like objects, like, um, well, the Maltese Falcon mm-hmm. being a thing that people are pursuing in that film, but it doesn't actually matter. And they end the movie not even being sure what it, signifies or what it's meant or what it's worth it's like 
what is this? The, the, the object that they end up with, spoiler alert for a film that's probably 70 years old, mm-hmm. is that it's a fake and that the real Maltese Falcon is still out there. Um, but then there's like the Goonies, X marks the spot, you know, treasure hunt movies or it's a mad, yeah. mad, mad, mad world where they get to the big W and the movie ends at that point. So mm-hmm. it really wasn't about the final destination. It was about the a wacky adventure they went on to get there. Um, Apocalypse Now, where they're going up the river to kill Kurtz. Uh, mm-hmm. Or Escape from New York, where it's to get the tape. Um, I, are you giving me think, all of your picks? No, I was like categorizing them. No, my pick is oh, going to be pretty obvious, I think, because my pick was the one where I first learned what the term MacGuffin was, and I read it in Empire Magazine. Right. And, uh, uh, but I'll save that for the end. Give some oh, people something to okay. look forward to. I'll right. tell you one that I watched for this episode was a French film called Earrings of Madame of Madame D. It's a film from 1953, directed by Max Ophuls, and it's right. about a wealthy socialite who she pawns her earrings that were a gift to her. And we follow the earrings as they go on their own little journey, almost like the, the what was that movie about the traveling ants? And uh, I wanted to watch it to see if the movie about the earrings would class as a MacGuffin. And um, I'm not particularly sure now after what you said, because right. the earrings could be a necklace, the earrings could be anything, but the, the earrings are the focus of the story. So we're like following what goes on with them and how they... they when their way through the story but it's a great little film and I wanted to bring it up because I watched it that's fascinating so is it that we're following the earrings as they go past from hands to owner to owner throughout time is that what it is so what she does is her husband buys her these very expensive earrings yeah and she pawns them off for money and she intends to buy them back okay but they get sold on and then the husband learns of her deception mm-hmm. and it sort of creates the schism between the two of them where he knows that she sold them, but you know he's saying to her like, "Why don't you wear those earrings to the opera?" And she's like, "Oh, I'll, I'm having them cleaned or whatever." And then the earrings get sold on, and they, they leave the country. And uh, but it's it's a, it was a film that I hadn't been aware of prior to this topic, and I thought I'll watch it for this, and I really enjoyed it. But I don't particularly know whether that would count as a golden fleece or a MacGuffin or whether even the categories in either camp but it was an object that the movie was about okay that was really more about how the characters react to a problem that's created I think it sounds like a MacGuffin Kevin and it's just like it's, it's, it's just framed in a very interesting way where the kind of the MacGuffin is we're almost seeing the world from the point of view of the MacGuffin or the story from the point of view of the MacGuffin I want to see this. I think you'd enjoy it. I think you should put it on your watch list and watch it. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It's beautifully shot. Like the camera work in that is great. Excellent. I'm going to take the ball here. I'm kind of highlighting films that really Is the ball a MacGuffin? Yes. No, the golden, ball's a golden fleece. No, golden fleece. The, the ch- anyway, I've got myself tied up in knots. This is how my brain has been for the last few weeks, Kevin. Right. I've been, I've been, I've just fucking all, I've got so many terms going. I've got this corkboard with all these different lines and posters and symbols and um, You're like all Charlie from things. Always Sunny. It all connects. 
<laughs> no, it's all different. It's all different. Um, but my first film, a film that I watched, not even for this topic, but I just watched it because I'd never seen it. But it turns out that it's got a great example of a MacGuffin. And it's a film I really enjoyed. It's a comedy written and directed by Elaine May. It is... I know the film. Ishtar. Ishtar. Three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and... These men are pawns. I put a price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the two messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. So how do they wind up on everyone's hit list? Your life is in danger. Behave normally. We have a guns pointed at your back. No, don't put your hands up, you idiot. My little darling. My little darling. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. This is unbelievable. Three, two, one. It's great. <laughs> it's great. You know what? That film was sold to me as one of the notorious flops, a terrible movie that almost brought down Hollywood, the way that the legend yeah. was talked about the film. And then I watched it and I found it to be a very pleasant, amiable, jolly little film that is just a feel-good story with two irascible protagonists with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, where it could, it could be like the Three Stooges. It's just not as, as slapstick as that. Yeah. And I just really enjoyed it. And I couldn't believe that people give it such a hard time. And I wonder whether there was a bang of misogyny associated with it, where it was like Elaine May, a notorious director who overshot films and tended to go over budget got labeled as an uncontrollable director and she mm. needed to be brought down peg or two i also think maybe some of its failure is down to a little bit of miscasting because i think that warren beatty is kind of miscasting his role uh, so uh, to explain what i'm talking about the film first of all is about two terrible lounge singers who get books to play a gig in Morocco. But somehow they end up becoming pawns in like this international power play between the CIA and this emir of the kingdom of Ishtar and, and whatever rebels are trying to overthrow the regi- regime. So Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty end up at the epicenter of it completely accidentally because these two guys are idiots. And if mm-hmm. one is a smart idiot, it's Dustin Hoffman's character who pretends he's got a career. And the real idiot is Warren Beatty. But they both have this passion to become musical hits, musical greats. They want to be like, um, what's the Simon and Garfunkel. But I th- where I think the miscasting happened was in Warren Beatty because he does, just doesn't come across as an idiot. He always comes across as someone playing dumb. But you always kind of go, it's Warren Beatty. It's, he's, you know he's smart and handsome and... You know, the type of character he's playing doesn't doesn't match to the personality, I think, of the character. Can I just give you a sidetrack there? Because yeah. what you're saying 
one of the other, you know, I guess, classically handsome actors who will probably, probably fit into the Warren Beatty mold is Brad Pitt. And in Burn yeah. After Reading, which is a good MacGuffin movie, but in Burn yeah. After Reading, Brad Pitt plays a fantastic idiot. Osborne Cox. And you, I take it, are Mr. Black? Yes, I am. You have the money? The $50,000? That's what was agreed upon. Osborne Cox. All right, let me explain something to you, Mr. Black. You know who I am, I know who you are. Perhaps. But appearances can be deceptive. Yeah. What you're engaged in is blackmail. That is a felony. That's for starters. Appearances can be deceptive. I'm a mere good Samaritan. Secondly, the unauthorized dissemination of classified material is a federal crime. If you ever carried out your proposed threat, you would experience such a shitstorm of consequences, my friend, that your empty little head would be spinning faster than the wheels of your Schwinn bicycle back there. You think that's a Schwinn? No! Give me the fucking floppy or the CD or whatever the fuck it is as soon and as I'll you give us the way. money, dickwad! Brad Pitt is so stupid looking and uh, it's, you know, he's just a very convincing, like, empty-headed moron. He just looks like one of those dumb six-year-old children that doesn't have a clue where they are, what's going on, and they're just yeah. spaced out. So, um, yeah, I, I guess Warren Beatty is probably a little too cynical uh, of an actor to be able to completely submit to being a moron. Yeah, it's, 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 a, str- it's a strange little one. No, on saying that, I had a blast with this film. It kind of has a bang of, do you remember those Bing Crosby, um, what's it, Bob Hope movies, where they would go on trips up the, up the Nile. There was like something yeah. up the Nile. There was a whole series of, it kind of, kind of has that vibe to it. Now, the scene, the MacGuffin scene in this that I really got a kick out of is that, okay, by whatever contrivances, right, what's critical to the whole political kind of machinations of this plot is this map, this ancient map, right? So whoever has the map is going to, can prove themselves to be the true ruler of Ishtar. Yada, yada. It doesn't really matter. The film doesn't really get stuck in the mud. But somehow, the map gets sewn into the lining of Dustin Hoffman's jacket. And he oh, never yeah. knows, he never knows anything about it, right? He doesn't know. And Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are being exploited by different factions. So one has been exploited oh. by the CIA. The other has been exploited by the rebels. And they both are sent out into the desert. To die, right? To die, but sent out with thinking they have this this epic kind of like mission, this secret mission that they're both going on, but they have to keep it secret from each other. And they're wandering through the desert. And, and Dustin Hoffman fashions his jacket into a kind of a, what about like a, 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 he turns it inside out so the map is exposed to the elements of the sun and they're dying. And they're, and they're just such idiots. Fuck. Just wait a minute. Just, just drink a little bit of this. Don't spill it, Hawk. Don't spill it. Don't spill it. 
Come, come, that's that's all right. Okay. Is this is 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 this is this the oasis? Does this look like an oasis to you? Yeah, look at the look at the birds. Are those vultures? Yeah. You fainted. They thought you were dead. You mean they're here on spank? Yeah. I think it's very important not to let yourself get too run down when you come out here. We just can't afford to walk around looking for an oasis. Do you understand? I don't understand it. It was just an hour and a half outside of Shelly Benamore. You can't miss it. Who told you that? Who told you that? You can't remember. Uh -huh. Well, we missed it. So here's to my beads. Wait, 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 wait. Are you crazy? That's our only water. So what? We're going to be back in Shelly Benamore in a little while. It's going to be night. You don't need water at night. Wow. Now, are you sure it's safe to count on a lot of bees in the desert? What, yeah. For a trail? Yeah. What yeah. if there's a big wind? There is no wind in the desert. Who told you that? I can't remember. Oh. I see. Huh. To the bees. Kind of drinking, gallantly drinking the water, saying, the oasis is just over the hill, <laughs> just an hour and a half out of town, and they're quite clearly going to die. <laughs> it's just so fucking... <laughs> Funny. Elaine May is brilliant at comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Ishtar, if you haven't seen it, you've got to watch it. It's so much better than what it's been purported to be. Yeah. But, um, as you were saying all that, I think I've just come up with maybe a golden fleece, sort of a, a character who is a MacGuffin in a story that is brilliant. And he's one of my favorite, favorite actors. And he just got slaughtered recently in a, a hit piece online saying that he's not funny. And uh, I couldn't disagree more, but it would be Martin Short in Inner Space. Test pilot Tuck Pendleton wants to make history. Supermarket clerk Jack Putter needs a vacation. Jack, Sir, I'm Jack, sorry. you're late. That's not good. You know it's coupon day. Lieutenant Pendleton is about to be miniaturized placed into this needle and then injected into this rabbit. Rock and roll. But something went wrong. And Tuck's about to get a new destination. <gasps> Inside Jack Putter. I'm not a man. Hello, can you hear me? I'm possessed! Now, Jack's got twice the problems. How you doing, Jack? But he's double the man. <laughs> With Tuck on his side. Kick him more <laughs> In his gut. <laughs> and on his case. You're not gonna back groceries all your life, are you, Jack? And only 24 hours left for Jack to get out of danger. So that Tuck can get out of Jack. <laughs> Dennis Quaid, Martin Short. Give yourself a shot of adventure. Inner space. Yeah, in inner space, he he inadvertently gets injected with Dennis Quaid in the little yes little inner space ship, and um, everybody's pursuing him. Yeah, he's a classic type of protagonist in those type of MacGuffin type stories, where it's like literally oblivious. someone's in the wrong place. Yeah, oblivious in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you know what? Those types of stories are so much more fun because we don't know what's going to happen next. Because the story is kind of has is not locked into a certain path that has to be, you know, we have to get to the top of the tower to be able to get whatever before the man comes, opens up the golden 
locker and broom falls out. No, this, you know, Mar- it sounds we, like a Colbert's in- movie. I know. That's just- but what's fun about those, particularly inner space, is that he's just someone who is just a normal nobody, just a regular Joe. And he gets yeah, he's just a guy in working this- in a supermarket. And he, he, he's got a crush on his co-worker. But he's brilliant. I love that film. Deploying optic remote. Optic sensor armed and ready. Switch to manual trajectory control. Firing optic sensor. What's wrong? What's wrong? Let me see. You stand up now, Jack. What, what is this? Would it bugs just stand up? What's going on here? This can't be. I'm in a man. I'm in a strange man. I'll be a son of a bitch. I'm in a strange man, surrounded by strangers in a strange room. Just saying that. So we, we know that Hitchcock uses MacGuffins a lot, or has yes. done. Yeah. The Coen brothers have as well. For sure. I've got one on my list. Big Lebowski. That rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. That's that's a MacGuffin. The, the rug. Oh, brother, we're at though. I can get the part from Bristol. It'll take two weeks. Here's your pomade. Two weeks? That don't do me no good. Here's Ford Auto Man's Bristol. Hold on now. I don't want this pomade. Dapper Dan. I don't care, Dapper Dan. I care Fop. Well, I don't want Fop, goddammit. I'm a Dapper Dan man. Watch your language, young fella. This is a public market. Now, if you want Dapper Dan, I can order it for you. Have it in a couple of weeks. Well, ain't this place a geographical oddity? Two weeks from everywhere. Uh, yes, definitely. That's a MacGuffin. It's something they can't, whatever they set off in their quest is not really the reason they're going off in the first place, and it kind of gets lost halfway through. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got one on my list. I've, I'm going to have a Coen Brothers on my list, definitely. Do you have another pick, or do you want me to move on to my pick, Kevin? Um, well, this is one that is probably like a golden fleece thing. But okay. when I was like mad scrambling, looking up what other people had se- selected as their favorite MacGuffins, I saw Ryan from Saving Private Ryan on there. Stand out of your weapon. Keep those actions clear. I'll see you on the beach. And I thought, is he really a MacGuffin? He's a character and it's, you know, it's all about going on this mission to save Matt Damon because all of his brothers have been killed in action and he's the last of his lineage. And mm. uh, the US government don't want to send, I don't know, five or six letters home to the mother saying, you've lost all your sons. That's too much of a price to pay for the war. Mm-hmm. And then Tom Hanks is like, you know, make it count. 
You see, in that example, I would definitely say it's a golden fleece because yeah. the story is all driven towards getting Ryan, getting it. They desperately need to get him so that he, so as a squad, even though they don't care about him, they care about coming off that mission and kind of getting, you know, back to safety or just quitting that. But they continue to chase it to the nth degree. And it's all about saving Private Ryan. It all is so important. So they, so I would call that, in my mind, is a, a perfect example of a golden fleece. Because if they get him, that means their mission is done. They can kind of go back to safety of R&R. That's how I would see that one. It's an interesting topic because you, you'd think, if you didn't give it too much thought, that if your stories depend on a MacGuffin, on something which is unimportant to the story, you know, you'd be told, everything must matter in a story, so cut it out. If you don't need it, mm-hmm. cut it out. Um, or if the audience don't need it, cut it out. But yeah, so you're deliberately including something which doesn't matter, but it does motivate the story. Exactly. It's just like a key that gets the engine going. That's all it is. Or it's, or it's something that's along the line. And it doesn't have to matter to our main protagonist at all. It's just enough, something that's going to get the get the ball rolling of the story. Yeah. And we are then away. It's just like, right, we can leave the key behind us, we've the car starters, even though you know. But I kind of like MacGuffin stories because they streamline it. The thing that I dislike the most in many, many, many films is when they're too plot driven and it's plot, 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 plot. But a MacGuffin yeah. allows you to strip all that away. The plot does not matter as much as it's the story. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're meant to be doing with every well, film uh, is tell a story, not tell a plot. Exactly. So I think a, a MacGuffin declutters that and you're not so caught up in trying to be clever. You're just trying to be truthful. Absolutely. And as long as the MacGuffin isn't convoluted and complicated, right? Yeah. I think that's important because you just have to it's realize- a switch, it's an, that's all it is. It, what That's does it do when you flick the switch? Yeah. Who knows? If, we'll never know. If it's a, a golden fleece MacGuffin, make sure it's not complicated. Make sure it's just really simple. And let us focus on the characters who we care about. Well, I give you another one. Do go for it. I'm a lot of my ones I've got listed here are all like um, Hitchcock films. Uh, the, the 40 Grand in Psycho, North by Northwest, the microfilm, mm-hmm. the uh, Government Secrets in 39 Steps. Funnily enough, Hitchcock himself described the microfilm in North by Northwest, his best MacGuffin, because it is absolutely, totally empty. That's how he categorized his MacGuffins. He said, if they are completely empty and uninteresting, that's the perfect MacGuffin. And I was like, that's really interesting. And that's a top three Hitchcock movie for me. That's a great. It's I'd a watch great it one. every time it was. It would come on the telly. You'd have to watch it. It's just yeah. so much fun. I've watched a few for this, uh, researching this topic, and of early ones that I hadn't seen, and they've like gone up my list of holy shit, like pre US Hitchcock. Where I went, oh, I absolutely adore these films. Like what? One that wasn't on my list was the Thirty Nine Steps. Sorry, that I had seen, that I loved, mm-hmm. absolutely loved. Like it, it. The difference between U.S. cinema and British cinema at the time was was astounding. British, like the, the movies Hitchcock were making, was they were so cinematically engaging and kinetic 
They actually had real energy. The camera was moving a lot. He used miniatures a lot, which was so exciting. Um, it I was a real industry for- back then. Not like it is now, which is fucking... Thank you, Satcho. It's flipped. It's, flipped. it's absolutely flipped. So, and another one of his pre-American um, American days films is on my list, later on my list. But before we get there, I've got another comedy as uh, an example of a film that I think was actually a very good MacGuffin. And it's the Holy Grail, but not Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime... There comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. Uh, Yes, thank you. Next. Is actually Mm -hmm. a great MacGuffin because it would seem like it's a golden fleece because he, King Arthur and his guys go out there to, they need to go out and get the, the, the Holy Grail for reasons. But, they never get the go- they never get the grail. They never get it's never a thing. It's always something that's kind of just eluding them. It's just a reason for them to go into the next scene full of jokes. And the scene I love from Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the one where they come to the French castle. Hello! 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 Who is it? It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guidel Wamba. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, He's already got one, you see. What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. I told them we already got one. <laughs> well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English type, sir. And I just think the, the, the rest of the film doesn't care about the Holy Grail. He's the only one who actually cares about it, and the film does not care about it at all in ever resolving the idea of this, uh, of, of this guy on his quest. And I think it's uh, actually a really good example of MacGuffin. Because only one person actually cares about it, and that's King Arthur. The rest of them, everyone else, even the filmmakers, don't give a shit. That's a good one. I'll take yes. It. <laughs> you should rewatch it. It's excellent. Yeah. I was never a big Monty Python fan. No way. Yeah, way. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, I'm not going to hold it against you. Nerd humor. It, exp- it explains your sense of humor. Does it? I don't no, know. it doesn't. I'm you say things you. and then you can't back it up. I'm just teasing you, Kevin. That's all. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Cameron got ripped over the coals for using unobtainium in Avatar, where people were like, ah, you idiots, you've called it unobtainium. That's the stupidest name ever, yet that's the scientific term that actual real scientists will use 
for right. an element that isn't on the, the periodic table yet. So unobtainium is real, and he was just using a real term, but because the term is so on the nose, yeah, people thought that's the dumbest name ever for a MacGuffin, unobtainium. But, I yeah. didn't realize that it's actually based in It's a real scientific fact. term. He just took the scientific term and used it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that, that is actually an example of a MacGuffin. The, the, the villains care about it, but our that main or- characters... Yeah, that's actually a, that clearly would be a MacGuffin. It's not a golden fleece. The main characters don't care about the, ma- the MacGuffin. It's just it's a motivation for the bad guys to do their bad bad shit, and it's all happening to the to the Navi and uh, Jake Sullivan is uh, gets taken into their fold. So that is an example of a MacGuffin, definitely. Rich, stop! That's Jesus. Their damn village happens to be resting on the richest unobtainium deposit. Within 200 clicks in any direction. I mean, look at all that cheddar. <laughs> well, who gets him to move? Guess. <laughs> what if they won't go? Oh, I'm betting that they will. Okay, 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 okay. Look, look. Killing the indigenous looks bad. But there's one thing that shareholders hate more than bad press. And that's a bad quarterly statement. I didn't make up the rules. So just find me a carrot that'll get them to move. Otherwise, it's going to have to be all stick. Okay? You got three months. That's when the dozers get there. But we're wasting time. I like this guy. You know, you were talking about the changes in what a MacGuffin was since Star Wars came along. Mm-hmm. With Lucas making R2-D2 into a MacGuffin, retroactively saying that he's a MacGuffin. And then Marvel coming along and building entire franchises around a MacGuffin or a Golden Fleece, mm-hmm. we'll say. As, you, as we were talking about piles of shit, I thought of Jurassic Park and I thought of that little uh, shaving cream canister oh, yeah. that had yeah. all the dino DNA in it. Yes. And then the sequels are built upon the MacGuffin. Oh my God, yeah. You're so right. That the villain was after. 100%. The, the, the shaving can in that first film is definitely 100% a MacGuffin. It gets lost. It can st- I can still see the shot of it just getting buried um, in, the, in the mud as the rain is teeming down on them after, what's his name from? Um, Nedry. The security guy. There you go. Is killed. And all that, that sequence in there, you know where it's like, Dodgson, Dodgson, we got Dodgson here. That yeah. scene is there to set up him trying to steal the MacGuffin. Yeah. And it's only in the story in order to motivate him shutting down the security system in the park in order to yeah. uh, steal it and abscond. What, what's the dramatic question of that film? And the dramatic question is, will these characters survive? And I think when we have stories about characters where we we're, as an audience are wondering, well, how are they going to get out of this shit? I think it makes us lean in more because we as an audience can kind of put ourselves in the main character's shoes uh, more. Yeah. I think they're more fascinating stories, more exciting and thrilling stories rather than, okay, we got, you know, we got to get to, now we got to, got to get the dino DNA over to this place and plug it in and extract the thing. And before we, after we've extracted the thing, then we can put it at the other device. Like I'm much more fascinated, fascinated, wondering: Are they going to make it out alive at the end of it? That's all I care about. 
You shouldn't use my name. Dodson! Dodson! We've got Dodson here! See, nobody cares. Nice hat. You're trying to look like a secret agent? 750. On delivery, 50,000 more for each viable embryo. That's 1.5 million if you get all 15 species off the island. Oh, I'll get them all. Remember, viable embryos. They're no use to us if they don't survive. Oh, how am I supposed to transport them? Bottom screws open. It's cooled and compartmentalized inside. You got so that's great. Customs can even check it if they want to. Let me see. Go on. There's enough coolant inside for 36 hours. No menthol? The, em the embryos have to be back here in San Jose by then. And that's up to your guy on the boat. Seven o'clock tomorrow night on the east dock. Make sure he gets it right. How are you planning to beat security? Oh, I've got an 18-minute window. 18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research. Gracias, señor. Don't get cheap on me, Dodson. That was Hammond's mistake. Kyle Reese's sperm. That would be a MacGuffin. <laughs> In Terminator. That's... <laughs> They should, and often some films get renamed, named after the MacGuffin. So if they change yeah. the title of the Terminator to Kyle Reese's sperm, <laughs> it'd be far more. Funny. Like you could just imagine people queuing around the block, not to see the Terminator, but to see the new movie Kyle Reese's sperm. <laughs> That's a good one. Perfect example of MacGuffin. <laughs> if they just gave him a vasectomy in the future, that would have solved everything. Everything and far less painful, apparently, than getting yeah. shot in the head. Uh -huh. You already because John you, Connor would be a golden fleece in the second one, so the sperm is a MacGuffin in the first one, but John Connor, yes. as a 13 year old boy, is a golden fleece in the second one. Yeah, absolutely. He's the thing that they they have to they have to protect um, from the Terminators in order to you know, have a have a win at the end of that story. Definitely. And then Christian Bale is a golden shower in the third one. <laughs> or the fourth one. What was the, there was a third one. I forgot about the third one. But you know, I I a real real life example, why this is kind of a real um, Well, would you include a thing? a a there and throw in like I, a load of um, laughter sounds just because good. You know, good the reputation good, no. depends upon it. I need people Thanks. to know that I'm funny. Thanks for queuing me up. I'll definitely get the soundboard out. I'll dust it off and plug I'll, it in. I'll send it over to you. <laughs> get the cranks going. There's 1,800 um, keys on it. So, you know, they're all marked. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm surprised it's just 1,800. Um, but you're, you're actually, t we were talking, uh, why this has become kind of like locked in my head is because, you know, I'm you know thinking about different stories and all that sort of stuff. And I know in the past, I have gotten and at times hung up on the MacGuffin or the golden fleece in my story. And, and it's almost overwhelms the second half of my story at times, right? In, in different projects. And one of the exercises that someone advised me to do, which fucking helped so much, is they said, take it out around the around back of the shed and shoot it. Take it out of your story and build your story without that plot device. 
and just make your story work on the tar- uh, on you know with just your characters in the in center stage and then if you got your that's story what i was working, saying earlier on about executives and script editors saying that and then thinking well also it might help me to tell the story because it's focusing every character looking in the same direction therefore yeah. you have less you have less dead ends that characters can go down and the story can become too sprawling and and hard to navigate. But if everybody's focused on one focal point, Mm -hmm. then, you know, it's just about who those people are and how they behave and how they engage and interact with each other. And you get to gallop along in the story and be as entertaining as you possibly can and not have to worry about, well, what do they want? Well, they want that thing. Therefore, which is simplified everything for yourself. Yeah. yeah, which is which is totally fine, and I think that can be totally as long as you make as young as you make that, that that totally entertaining. But what I was saying was basically, if you can take out that really complicated, confusing thing, build your story, and make sure that characters are all bouncing off each other, that you know that you kind of have a you you know where they're, where they're supposed to end up, and then once you've got all your character, you know you've got them front and center, you can kind of reintroduce your MacGuffin or your Golden Fleece then. And like rebuild your story then with it, knowing that everything kind of works. Even if you took it out, it'll work anyway. You know, you could interchange yeah. it with anything. You could interchange it with a, a, a toothbrush. You could put the toothbrush there instead of and just call it a football. You can call it whatever, uh, a, a, a tissue. And it would still, everything would still work, you know, as long as you make that 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 thing very, very simple and um, and clear. I think, you know, that's where you'd be all right, ultimately. So my next pick is a Coen Brothers film, and it's Burn After Reading. Medola found, like, this CD just lying in a locker. On the floor there. Yeah, and it's these files, man. I'm not comfortable with this. It was just lying there. You should put up a note in the ladies' locker room. Put up a note? Hello? Did anybody lose their secret CIA shit? I don't think so. This is some senior guy who screwed the pooch. This could put a big dent in my surgeries. Big time. I have gone just about as far as I can go with this body. Right. Osborne Cox? Yes. I thought you might be worried about the security of your shit. I've been working on What you're engaged in is blackmail. I'm a mere good Samaritan. Give me the CD and the money, dickwad. Where's the money? He didn't give it to me. Uh, who's Farrer? It's messy. He is screwing Mrs. Cox. Pull around the corner, we'll do it in the back. What's that cool? Back of the car, not the rear entry situation. I love that film. I love is that. It? And it never gets talked up as one of the go. great Coen Brothers films, but it is so bloody entertaining. And for me, the Coen Brothers comedies can be very hit or miss. Sometimes they can be, the, the, the humor can be bone dry. Mm-hmm. And other times um, it can be wacky and out there. Yeah, but that the, the burn after reading is just right in the sweet spot for me of just being hilarious, and it it's such a oddly structured film that you you can almost come away from that feeling a little dissatisfied. Where it's like, is that it? But then that's part of the the humor of it is that it's all it's all pointless. It's all just like a fucked up heist that just goes tits up, and um, it's very 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 pleasurable and fun. It, this was a typical example of a Coen Brothers film, me watching a Coen Brothers film in the cinema. Uh, I went in excited because it's another Coen Brothers film. They're probably my favorite filmmakers. I ended up coming out of it going, what? 
that wasn't that was what was all that about? That was just they were just taking the piss. It's f- right. You're so consistent. It's funny because that was the thing that you said way, way, way back on our shoddily recorded very first episode, best screenwriter scene, where you yep. said, My I have two reactions to a Coen Brothers film. My first one is I don't think I like that. And then your second reaction is, I actually think that's my favorite film ever. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, half of the course, Born After Reading is like that for me. I went back, revisited it, and I enjoyed the shit out of it. I watched it again for research for this and really enjoyed it. There's a great example of a, a MacGuffin in this, and it's John Malkovich's character's memoir. That's how he calls it. He says, they are my <laughs> memoir, Right. He is so obnoxious and pretentious. He is a he is a ex now ex foil CIA agent. He is a great foil. He's writing this drivel of a memoir because he's lost his fucking job. Right? It ends up in the hands of some gym workers, namely um, Brad Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand, um, yeah, and. Brad Pitt, they don't know what it is. And, <laughs> and the scene I love from it is the scene where Brad Pitt comes jaunting into Francis McDormand's apartment, all excited, saying, I know what the shit is. And we are going to call him and we are going to get some <laughs> finders to give To give people a, a little visual representation of that, you have seen the meme of Brad Pitt dancing with his hands over his head. He's wearing like bicycle skin tight bicycle shorts and like a gym top and he's just doing the yeah <laughs> he's it's so very happy. fun he's a puppy dog as you already highlighted when I was talking about Warren Beatty it's a great example of someone I, th- I think it's a great example of someone playing a dumb character really well I think it's, yeah. he's so airheaded it's, it's hard it's, to do it's it's very very difficult to do now what I love about this MacGuffin you do it is very that, well though thank you Kevin <laughs> <laughs> I do I do it in method style. I just live it, right? John Malkovich doesn't realize his memoir is gone missing. A, they when they get it, they don't know what it is. They think it's like top secret government shit. I think that's the actual yeah. terminology they use. When Brad Pitt, they don't even make a big plot and a plan of how they're going to, uh, to 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 deal with this. But when he makes the call to in the in the dead of night to John Malkovich, he does it in this really suspicious, deep throat way. But he's but everything he's saying is like, "I I found something that belongs to you. Do you want it back?" But he makes it very ominous and um and uh, you know uh, intimidating. And John Malkovich just gets fucking furious with him. It's hilarious and. Brad Pace and Francis McDormand are indignant because they're so self-obsessed and kind of oh, just so, so dumb. much fun. I want to watch yeah. it again though with you just talking about it. Hello. Uh, Osborne? Osborne Cox? Yes. Uh, who is this? Um, this, um, is this Osborne Cox? Who is this? Who are you? I'm a good Samaritan. I'm sorry I'm calling at such an hour, but I thought you might be worried. Worried? About the security of your shit. 
What on earth are you talking about? Who am I speaking to? Uh, I, your files, your uh, the documents. I know these documents are sensitive, but I am perfectly willing to give back to you your sensitive shit. You know, at a, at a time of your choosing. What documents are you talking about? Osborne Cox? Yes, yes, this is... Hello, it's Osborne Cox. Who the fuck are you? What documents are you talking about? Okay. The bureau chief in Belgrade, we all call Slovak the Butcher. He had very little report with his staff and his dispatches. Very little rapport with his staff, fucking moron. How did you get this? Don't blow a gasket, Osborne. We have... It's not important where... Who the fuck you are, but you have no idea what you're doing. Oh? Why so uptight, Osborne Cox? I'm ju- I'm just a good Samaritan, a, a traveler on tell the road. Him, we're going to get him back. What? I just thought that he would like to maybe know oh, and tell him about that good Samaritan tactic. Who is that? Hello? You tell him. He's inconveniencing Hello? us. Hello? Who the fuck is this? You know, this is a major inconvenience for us, and we just thought a reward. Ah, so it's money. So it's money. You well, want money? Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, why not? Listen to me. Am I out of line here? Listen to me, you two clowns. Listen to me very, very carefully. You have no idea what you're doing. And I warn you. You warn us. You warn us. You warn us. Let me tell you something, Mr. Intelligence. We warn you. We will call you back with our demands. Hello? Hello? Chad. No, Chad. Don't play his game. Sorry. It's fucking fun. It's fucking fun. It really is. That's a great It's a terrible scene. fucking shame that they've parted ways and they're not going to be working together again. I can't. At least we got the movies. That's all I'll say. At least no, we got the movies. But I want movies. more movies. I, know, I want more movies. <laughs> My next pick, Kevin, I'm going to rattle through them now, right? My next pick is from the man who didn't coin the phrase, but the man who popularized the phrase of MacGuffin or the term MacGuffin. And it's Alfred Hitchcock. I could have gone Psycho. I could have gone North by Northwest. I could have gone The 39 Steps. All films I love. But one film that I watched in my research for this was an absolute delight and had a great MacGuffin. It was a film from 1940 and it's Foreign Correspondent. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Johnny Jones of the Globe Syndicate speaking to you from Amsterdam, Holland, where I've been an eyewitness to the assassination of the Dutch cabinet minister Van Meer, the key figure of European politics. An hour ago, I arrived from London by plane to meet Van Meer. As I waited for him on the steps of the Peace Palace, he alighted from his car and made his way toward me. Halfway, he was stopped by a news photographer who asked for a picture. Van Meer consented and was shot dead by a revolver held close to the photographer's camera. Bystanders rushed to Van Meer's aid, and I pursued the assassin through the crowd only to lose him in traffic. Follow that car. Quick. Say, you better get out of here. This might be dangerous. You're a silly driver. Trouble, who's he shot? Van Meer assassinated. Did? Looked like it. I've been working my way through all of Hitchcock's films that I haven't seen. A lot of his British films, I'll be honest with you. And they're all 
bangers. Like brilliant, fucking great. Like yeah, he's not overstated as one of the great filmmakers, and he has Jesus. Did he make like something like seventy films or something? It's crazy. I I, shit ton, and his early stuff is amazing. The that British era is amazing. The the stuff he made. Yeah, the British British era is incredible. Yeah, really amazing. This one stood out for me as I, I'm putting it way up there in the top of my Hitchcock movies. Not at the very top, but I absolutely adore it. So this one, for, to give you a synopsis, it's about an American crime reporter uh, played by uh, Joel McHale, who I think, again, is miscast. If they had someone like a Cary Grant, a young Cary Grant in the role, it would have been brilliant, but he's miscast. Um, so he's assigned to Europe as a foreign, foreign correspondent to cover the imminent war because this film came out, you know, at the start of the war. Can but I just it, sidetrack you just for one second, yeah. just on this one thing? Mm-hmm. Do you know when you say someone's miscast, how do you define that? Because I, I will often like look at look at films and, and uh, the character is who the character is. So I'm I'm never like it, it. Sometimes just comes down to I don't believe them as the person they're playing. Yeah, but that's but, exactly it. I think their energy doesn't suit the character. I think I can imagine someone else in the role, if you know what I mean. So in the case of Ishtar, I could have imagined a Steve Martin in that role and I would have, enjoyed, I think it would have worked better. You know, I think it would have Steve made Martin it, playing dumb though? Steve, yeah, Steve Martin playing the jerk. Steve Martin plays dumb great. Okay. And in this, Joel McHale. I think Steve Martin's always quite um, high and mighty, but I guess you can be high and mighty and, and a dumb at the same time. Like, okay, think sorry. Of, think, uh, think Steve. For example, think Steve Martin in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, he's conniving. I wouldn't call him stupid in that. But he's, that's just a meeting of match. Uh, uh, um, a meeting of two psychopaths. That film is fucking. That's one of my great. favorite, 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 favorite yeah. films. Yeah. Oh my it is god. Great. Absolutely great. And what I mean by this is Joel Mc, Joel McHale in this one is a little bit too kind of like straight backed and a little bit too, uh, he, he doesn't kind of hit nail the humor at times, the wit okay. of Hitchcock where, you know, Cary Grant in North by Northwest, there's a kind of a smoothness to him, a kind of a, mm-hmm. ah, sure. and the kind of like, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and, you know, Joe McHale's a bit too straight backed. And I think the, that role, you know, if I had Cary Grant in that role, I think this would be an all time classic Hitchcock classic. But, what he's doing is basically, Joel McHale has been sent over to Europe. He's an American reporter, and he walks into the middle of an assassination, as happens in a lot of Hitchcock movies, and he stumbles upon a spy ring. So he basically is, he gets the help of a politician's daughter, and um, he's just thrown into this conspiracy. There are so many engaging and exciting action scenes in this. And in a, like in a lot of Hitchcock's films, they... There are set pieces set in dramatic locations like, you know, on Rushmore, Rushmore in, in that, in Saboteur. I think in Saboteur, it's the Statue of Liberty. Um, in, you know, so, so you know what I mean? These in Lifeboat, it's on the Lifeboat. It's on the Lifeboat. <laughs> well, this one, halfway through it, it happens, the exciting set piece happens in a windmill in Le- Netherlands. You know, those kind of classic uh, old school windmills. And Joel McHale's character ends up following the trail of the assassins into this windmill and where everything is happening, where he discovers what the fuck is going on or like, you know, really pulls back the curtain. And it's so incredibly well staged. It's so 
tense and entertaining and exciting. And you know, the only way Hitchcock mo- Hitchcock moves the camera in ways where he 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 understands the grammar of cinema in a way that so many other filmmakers definitely at the time did not understand. It was a delight. That film for me, I just I was leaning in going, I'm when was this one made? Nineteen forty. And Oh, you said that, sorry. But it was also a it was also ended up being a a propaganda film to try and call because it was before the US joined the war. This was a British so a, film. So when did so he Brit- So but didn't he Oh God, what was the film the the one on the train was his last British film and then he went to the States? He went to the States during the war. Strangers on a train. Stranger, so he went to the States during the war, definitely early, maybe 42 or 43 or something like that. And it was kind of seen politically kind of like, oh, has Hitch left England? It was because he was a big celebrity. So the fact that literally he, and figuratively, yeah, he was, yeah. The fact that Hitch left, it was some, he was sniffed upon by some newspapers as, hang on a second, are you running scared from Britain? You know, going what to the States. What did they want him America? to do? Did they want him to sign up? Well, in actual fact, this film is a propaganda film because this film right. ends up being a call to arms to America to say, come over and join the fight in Europe. And, it, and that's what it ends up being. It's like, you have to get your asses over here. And I think this film actually did its job because it was a huge success over in the States. And a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans were, you know, I suppose it did its job in kind of selling the idea of like, we need to join the fight over in Europe. Um, fascinating, fascinating film. But very entertaining. It has. It's so dynamic. That's what I would say. It's fucking feels. That's fresh. probably the best way to describe Hitchcock is that he's a dynamic filmmaker. Yeah. His the way that he moves the camera and the blocking and the 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 turns that he will have in his stories they just feel really dynamic and they're not dated. They don't feel. No. They might be dated in their language and in the 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 demeanor and the manner of the characters, but the ideas, the concepts, and the way that he proposes them and puts them forward, they just feel very modern. The shit that we get today, which is so safe and static and and sort of like basic, you go back to, to Hitchcock and what he was doing with these big fucking tanks of cameras yeah, and the limitations that they had and not being able to see what they were shooting because they were yeah. shooting on film. They didn't have playback and stuff. There's lessons to be learned there. About the shitification of filmmaking. <laughs> well, he was he was using stuff like miniatures ex- in exciting ways, and uh, I Jesus, it's just it's just a delight to go back and watch his films, and it doesn't feel like homework. But the, there were there were some cases where now you could have gotten actors that wouldn't do it. Then was it uh, Gary Cooper that you wanted for a part? And scary films were considered sort of. Uh, third rate in those days uh, when you first started. I think it was Gary Cooper you wanted yes, for one part. Yes, I wanted part. for Foreign Correspondent, yes. And later he said, I, I wish I had made that, but it was sort of yes. beneath the dignity of certain big stars. I don't, I don't think that, I don't think they could visualize what mm-hmm. the film was going to be like, you see. That's an incredible one in Foreign Correspondent. I think it's in Foreign Correspondent where you have a thing that um, you said you were surprised no one ever asked you how you did it or why technical people didn't, because it's oh, yes, impossible. That was, a, that was a scene where an airplane, a passenger, a, a clipper, you remember the clippers, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, being shot at during the war and was diving toward the ocean. And uh, we were in the cockpit with the pilot and co-pilot and without any cuts at all, 
the plane dives right to the ocean, hits the water, and the water comes in from the ocean over the pilot and co-pilot and possibly the camera. And not a soul questioned it. How you did that in one continuous shot. What happened to the camera crew or anything? Did they all drown and were never seen again? They just took it for granted. Maybe knowing you, they thought they probably did. And that, uh... Maybe, yeah. <laughs> How did you manage to get a shot where the view inside the cockpit went all the way down to the ocean, into the ocean, well, and the water very, came in? Very simple. You heard of uh, rear projection. Yeah, when they show the picture I on the back of a screen. Show the picture on the back, and you play the scene in front of the screen. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a test pilot go out off Santa Monica and dive with a camera on the front of the plane toward the ocean. Mm -hmm. pull out at the last minute. Then I had six screens made, eight feet wide, six feet high, built the cockpit, put the pilots in, and then the screen, made of rice paper. Behind the screen were two what we call dump tanks with chutes. These tanks are filled with 2,700 gallons of water each, and all I had to do was press a button. And as I looked at the screen, the moment we touched water, I pressed the button and the water shot right through the screen, tore it to ribbons, and all the water came in over the pilots. That's a very simple. The very the screen that... The so my second to last pick is something you've already mentioned, and it's from a film that came out in the same era, uh, 1941, The Maltese Falcon. Samuel Spade. Now, what can I do for you, Mr. Cairo? I'm trying to recover ornament that, uh, shall we see, has been mislaid. You're not hiring me to do any murders or burglaries, but simply to get it back. There's a girl wants to see you. Mr. Spade told me about your offer for the Falcon. After what happened to Floyd, I'm afraid to touch it except to turn it over to somebody else. What exactly did happen to Floyd? Have you any conception? How much money can be got for that blackbird? I know the value in human life you people put on it. Hey, what's this bird, this falcon that everybody all steamed up about? She didn't tell you what it did? You saw Joe this morning? Yeah. Why? Because I've got to keep in touch with all the loose ends of this dizzy affair if I'm ever going to make heads or tails of it. I only watched that for the first time about a month or two months ago. When was it? 1940 what? 1941. 1941, and it feels like it could have been made yesterday. Like if you were to make a period film and you were to dress it up and and uh, put it together, it wouldn't be as good. But the film feels so whip smart and dynamic, to use that word again, and just incredibly entertaining. And there's a reason that it has lingered and endured for 80 years. It is... Such an entertaining film. Exactly. The the delight I had in watching this film were the performers, were watching these incredibly iconic individuals bounce off each other. Like, so obviously you've got Humphrey Bogart playing Sam Spade and he is just the quintessential, quintessential um, private detective. But you've got like the likes of Mary Astor playing Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Who is, I thought it was uh, brilliant. 
Yeah. It's my she's first time wonderful. seeing her anything. I thought, she's a fantastic, she felt like a, a modern woman. Mm-hmm. She was brilliant. And, but then you add in like Peter Laurie's Joel Cairo, who is so sneery and obviously, again, almost like a comic book, comic character, but is so delight. He just pulls you into the screen. Like, you know, if any dialogue he has, you just, you just lean into him. The way his eyes are so expressive and how he's, he, he's, he's greedy. what you'd call a movie star. Fucking it's brilliant. Even, um, and I loved oh, him in Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to find the name of the guy. Oh, it was Sydney Greenstreet. He was brilliant. So Sydney Greenstreet is the guy who played uh, Casper Gutman. Gutman. He was a big fat man. <laughs> so his name was Gutman. Um, he's the but, big, um, benef- not benefactor. He's just the guy that is the puppet master. Yes. The, he's the, the one yeah. who's in pursuit of the Maltese mm. Falcon itself. The scene I loved in this was when all of the players are together in Sam Spade's, I think it's Sam Spade's apartment or is it Mary Astor's? I actually don't know. I think it's Mary Astor's. Is this the final scene? Yeah, it's when they're all together and they're conspiring against each other. Everyone is trying to manipulate the other person to to get themselves out of Dodge. I just delighted in them all. There's just these characters popping off each other and they're, they're like... Sam Spade doesn't give a shit. Well, Wilma, I'm sorry indeed to lose you, but I want you to know I couldn't be fonder of you if you were my own son. Well, if you lose a son, it's possible to get another. There's only one Maltese falcon. When you're young, you simply don't understand these things. How about some coffee? Put the pot on, will you, Angel? I don't like to leave our guest. Surely. Just a moment, my dear. Hadn't you better leave the envelope in here? Sit on it if you're afraid of losing it. You misunderstand me. It's not that at all. The business should be transacted in a business-like manner. <laughs> For instance, there are only nine bills here now. There were ten when I handed them to you, as you very well know. Well, I want to know about this. You palmed it. I palmed it. Yes. Do you want to say so or do you want to stand for a frisk? Stand for? You're going to admit it or I'm going to search you? There's no third way. <laughs> I guess I believe you, but I really do. You are a character, if you don't mind my saying so. You palmed it. Yes, sir. That I did. But can I say one thing about like yes. these older movies, these these films from the 40s and stuff, and even up to, I suppose... Well, where we are today, but back mm-hmm. then, they would have the smartest guys writing these films, and the, the the main through line that they would be focused on is making sure that the movie stars are are betters. They're like gods on screen. They're so mm-hmm. quick, they're so clever. They're never short of a a quick turn of phrase. They're shrewd. They're just incredibly entertaining, and we've moved into an era where it's all about making characters relatable and almost beneath us in that we can understand everything about them. They're so facile. They're so sort of like regular and ordinary, but back then these characters were erudite and, and just quick and clever. And I miss that. 
I miss mm. that so much where you're watching people that if you were in a room with them, you wouldn't be able to keep up with them. They're so whip smart. Yeah. What did stand out to me, like I adored the writing of this film, but what did stand out to me watching this film in close proximity to watching those British made Hitchcock films was how this did feel like a B movie in comparison. You know, the locations were so limited. The filmmaking, the use of camera was wasn't as dynamic as Hitchcock. By comparison to Hitchcock, it was like it's oh beautifully God, shot, though. It's yeah, it's it's painterly in its composition, but there were limited. It was, it was obviously a B movie at the time as well. But despite all that, it still is just so entertaining. And what is on the screen is just draws you in. And the final lines of the film is a perfect kind of. I, I, I should use it to, you know, close out the episode, but I'm not, it's not my final pick. But encapsulation of what MacGuffins are in. Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh? Again, it's a perfect summation mm. of what MacGuffins are. It's just like, they're nothing, but they're everything, you know? It's all, yeah. you know, in the eye of the beholder. You know, that's kind of... That's what my it's... dreams are. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. <laughs> now, Kevin, I've given you my... I've got my final pick. So before I get to my final pick, I want to hear from you. After all your research and after all of your looking at lists and, you know, you know, having a nice, gentle time of it, not getting driven demented by what a MacGuffin actually is. What is your pick for best MacGuffin or best MacGuffin scene? Um, I didn't think of best MacGuffin scenes because I thought that MacGuffins are really inconsequential mm. in the grand scheme of things. They're just there to engage the characters and the characters are what we're invested in watching. Um, I before we we spoke about golden fleeces and uh, MacGuffins being separate entities and separate sort of plot devices with different functions in the story and things like that, I had split mine up into different categories where it was like some that are concepts, some that are places, you know, X marks the spot, some that are people, like as I said, with Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now or the president in Escape from New York. Um, but I went back and that got, you know, blown out of water by you then telling me about golden fleeces. And I thought, okay, so that's an entirely different thing to think about. But the one that I went back to is a very obvious pick, but it's where I first learned what a MacGuffin was. Mm. And I read it in Empire Magazine where they were explaining why MacGuffins um, are not important to solve. They're not a puzzle that you need to figure out, that mm. it does not matter what thereafter and it was this the briefcase in pulp fiction yes and so there were theories banding about at the time which was like what is in the briefcase it glows mm. red when john travolta opens it up what could it be and people were like coming up with their theories where it's like marcel wallace's soul is in the briefcase mm -hmm. uh i don't even think that quentin tarantino was able to define what was in the briefcase uh we certainly didn't put forward an explanation. But that was the first time where I learned what a MacGuffin was when 
the topic came up, it was the first one that came to mind. It was like, oh, so it's the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And uh, in order to streamline this for myself, I thought, well, I'll go with the one that is the most obvious pick, but we haven't talked about Pulp Fiction at all on this run of episodes that we've done. So I'm safe. I'm not going to fall into another time travel slip up. <laughs> and if you're asking me for a scene, it would probably be the, the say what again scene where yeah. we first see the briefcase. Yeah. And John Travolta is like opening it up and it's glowing red. And you're like, what the fuck is in there? Is it a fucking bomb or what? It has a golden glow, not red, Kevin. All right, Will, we're not in school. You don't need to fucking <laughs> embarrass me in front of everybody. <laughs> People right, can't remember enough. what it glows. Fair enough, uh, fair enough. No, Jesus, I would have swore on a stack of Bibles that it glows red. But, um, and I also did have the cover up for this episode and I put a golden glow behind the, the briefcase. So there, that's how my brain works. Anyway, that's my pick. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? I didn't. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. Kevin, that is an excellent pick. It's the only pick. And it leads me on to... It's your... one. But I think it's a great pick and a great example of MacGuffin. It leads me on to my okay. very cliched pick. I can lean back now and I can relax. <laughs> lean back now. Let me do my thing. Um, so it leads me on to my pick, which is a very cliched pick. But oh my God, it's a pretty brilliant MacGuffin and a pretty brilliant film. It's from the same year as Foreign Correspondent, 1941. It is, of course, Rosebud in Citizen Kane. Give me a mic. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theatre. And what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. But I, I think it's an excellent it's an excellent example of a MacGuffin because it's the thing that's propelling the story along. What was the meaning behind Charles Foster Kane's final word, Rosebud? And it sends the journalist 
who is the, the one kind of like, you know, unraveling the story exactly. Yeah. You know, on on a on a mission to figure out what the fuck is this all about, and the final shot is just really unnerving and tragic because ultimately he never finds out you know it's he has this wonderful kind of like speech that he gives about like you know it's just something we'll never figure out in this particular guy you could have found out that rosebud meant i bet that would have explained everything no i don't think so no mr kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost anyway it wouldn't have explained anything I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. Well, come on, everybody. We'll miss the train. And this, we have this final ominous uh, crane shot over a landscape of just treasures just piled together all these treasures and we close in on this sled with the name Rosebud on it and there's a kind of a, a fade a cross fade over to so many of these things just being thrown in a furnace and we see that sled just being thrown in a furnace and it meant so much. It's something that meant so much to Charles Foster Kane, but ultimately for the, the the ones telling the story or the people who were following, they never found out. They were just kind of going, what's that about? And they never found out what it was. But us as an audience, we feel the ache, kind of tragedy of that character. And we, we've been taken on a journey, a compelling journey through this big figure's life. And it's a tour de force of filmmaking. I absolutely adore that film. I remember seeing it in the, the cinema in Kino back when the Kino was open down in Cork and just loving it on the big screen. And I think it's just a perfect example of what a MacGuffin should be. It shouldn't be something that's overly complicated or overly... What film is this? Driving. <laughs> it's Police Academy 4. That's what it is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but that is my pick for my favourite MacGuffin. It's, you know, it's Rosebud from Citizen King. So there you go, Kevin. We have got best MacGuffin scene in the bag. Done. Yes. And what? We know what the next episode is going to be. Because, as I said, yes, we do. Yes. This was a patron pick. Yes. And the patrons picked... Uh, this topic for you best MacGuffin scenes we turned it over to them and said okay now you can pick one for Kevin which is me and they had lots of options oh, I suppose we can tell them yeah do we uh, yeah, yeah I suppose we should tell them yeah my next episode is going to be best coming of age scene right okay very good yep very good there we go and so that wraps up the last main show of 2023 oh my god we're there already it's there already so now you just get to enjoy your Christmas and we'll be back in January for coming of age scenes and if we can find the time we're going to squeeze in our best first watches of the year over on our Patreon so you can hear all the films we discovered throughout the year that we think are ones that we want to recommend yeah and 
we're also going to try and do our best picks of 2023. So the new releases and, and squeeze that out just before we come back and do coming of age. But in terms of this run, that's it now. Oh my and God. Yeah. We've made it through so, another year, Kevin. Incredible. It did. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. I hope you all get fat as fools and have a great Again. dinner. Again. And a me and Will are in a secret Santa thing, so we don't know who has got what. But um, yeah, <laughs> there's only two of us in the office. <laughs> I put my own name out of the hat. <laughs> I got my name too. Oh my god, I got my name too. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, I'll send you an invoice. There, it's a fifty euro limit, isn't it? Fifty euro. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Come here. Oh, Have a great, great holiday, a great Christmas, and um, you'll be hearing our voices over probably the festive period at some stage, I'm sure. Yes, we'll, on our Patreon. We'll be back with the main show in the new year. And our Patreon is dirt cheap. We're cheaper than every other Patreon out there that I am aware of. So you get incredible value for money. And uh, there are 66 mini bits which are not really that mini they're like 40 minute episodes yeah um, we did all our horror October podcasts over there so it's like full of guests talking about genre films we've got extra audio commentaries we've got reviews on major new releases that come out and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun and yeah well we are we finally have we signed off have we signed off or are we signing we're signing goodbye? off now we're signing off okay Goodbye, Love everyone. Ye. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, Kevin. Take care. Happy Christmas, Will. Take care. The Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon member where you'll receive bonus shows where we talk about recent releases and what we're up to. And you'll receive access to our Discord chat room where we hang out with our listeners. Search the Best Bits Podcast on Patreon or click on the link in the show notes. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits for Will and Kevin. No, the best bits for Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't really throw what? <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits for Kevin and Willem. Talking TV <laughs> Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing. Because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because <laughs> it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then yeah. of course I was delighted with that and people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you.
Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off this stage. I'm not, that. I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God, I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I, that doesn't necessarily mean or I need to be squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about should I start the timer? Is this, have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rearing okay. to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster. Oh, very recently, it went. There's a Madam Web film, and I'm. What is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies but I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together so is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse to me it feels like it's in that space mm. anyway I thought I'm done with superhero movies I'm just over them I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago and I thought it was just tedious it's so lifeless the Marvels not Captain Marvel is that what Marvel's well yeah. she's in it Captain Marvel Captain yeah. Marvel 2 it was just sort of like, it was another one of those films that felt like Ant-Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. We feel like uh, yes, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels It's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction you know protein in it whatsoever you feel like oh wow I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry It feels like eating plastic Okay On the whole it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them Yet I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of The Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went to the Madam Web not really giving a fuck about the genre but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it and the trailer was awful it had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's she's shitting out exposition and I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage 
And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played that out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but... Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> oh, I have to listen to it. <laughs> he was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. <laughs> so I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie, so I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character, and to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role, and. Um, I enjoyed it, so I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Mm-hmm.